This is episode 73 of AA Beyond Belief, the podcast, and I'm your host, John S. In today's episode, we'll meet Serge Pringle the author of The Proactive 12 Steps for Mindful Recovery. The Proactive 12 Steps are an adaption of the original 12 Steps that describe the steps as a self-directed process as opposed to a mystical process in which change somehow happens to you. Serge is a life coach and therapist who practices in New York City, and he has a website, proactive12steps.com, where he offers his book, The Proactive 12 Steps for Mindful Recovery, free of charge as a download PDF file. He also has videos that he publishes on a weekly basis, and you can subscribe to his um, newsletter to receive those. Without further ado, my conversation with Serge Pringle, The Proactive 12 Steps for Mindful Recovery. Serge, uh, thank you for joining me. I'm looking forward to talking to you. John, thanks for inviting me, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. A couple of years ago, you wrote an excellent article on AA Agnostica about the Proactive 12 Steps, which is also a book that you have available in PDF format on your site, Proactive12Steps.com. And I thought, wow, this is really interesting. And not only do you have all of this information on your site, you've also made videos, which are actually very helpful um, for people that are interested in learning about this. Um, do you want to kind of give us an overview of maybe a little bit of your background and what led you to look at the 12 steps and to write them in this fashion or to look at them in this way? Um, so maybe first a qualifier of what I'm not is I'm not somebody who's part of the 12 step culture. Uh, I, I don't have uh, what would people qualify as an addiction, although on a continuum, I certainly can identify with the continuum where people can have addictive behaviors. So I consider myself a human being on a spectrum, on a, on a, on a continuum, uh, where, um, you know, it can, the, uh, the difficulty of the human condition can lead people, uh, to, uh, forms of suffering that include addiction. I am a therapist and a life coach, and I'm very interested in what it is that makes people change, including myself. And probably the reason I became a therapist and a life coach more than anything else is my own curiosity uh, and, uh, uh, you know, stakes in, uh, in figuring out how to manage my life uh, in a way as to have as happy or contented or satisfied a life as possible and overcome problems and challenges. Um, in that context, I have long been very interested in the 12 steps as um, a, a scenario, uh, a narrative of what, um, you know, liberation from um, suffering can be. Uh, and uh, the sense that so many people over time uh, have found a source of inspiration and, uh, and actually practical growth in it. So... So I have tried to understand it, uh, you know, from this perspective for many years uh, as something that, you know, had a depth and uh, uh, that would that needed to be better understood than simply believing that some miracle happens. Right. So really looking at the process behind 
the actions that that are taken through the twelve step process rather than I guess the belief the belief um, component. Yes, and so you you hit on the key word for me is that sense of the process, right? You know, and I think for many people probably the idea is the belief, and it's interesting that you know the the word belief. I'm not necessarily against it in the sense of, um, you know, faith healing, um, you know, because from a, a perspective that's religious, faith healing is something that comes from an outside source. But if you have a more humanistic perspective, you know, a person-centered perspective, then even faith healing is something that's an inherent capacity of human beings, you know, that has evolved through, you know, millions of years of evolution. Sure. So the narrative of an outside force like God creating faith healing is simply a way to describe something that's a profoundly human phenomenon. And to the extent that we can understand that human phenomenon and, and uh, harness it, you know, for our own benefit, uh, then it's great. You know, there's no reason to shy away from it because it has been hijacked by people who put a certain interpretation on it. Yeah, isn't that interesting? You know, that's exactly kind of how I I evolved um, with the twelve steps. I I approached them originally probably from uh, a, a more uh, traditional um, perspective, I suppose, where I was uh, maybe not a, a very deep believer. I was certainly trying to um, to do that. Um, but finally, after I I came to the conclusion I was an atheist, which really wasn't that long ago, a few years ago. I really started focusing on the actions and the things that I did and how those, how those actions impacted me. And all of a sudden, as I stood back, I could see that the belief wasn't that important. It was, it was more the, it was more what I was actually doing. And I could also see that I had a lot more in common with those people who did believe that there was a God. It was, as you said, it was the difference was in how we explained or described what was happening with us, the change that was going on with us. I would describe it in more practical terms, and someone else would describe it in more, you know, um, in, in an amazed, um, miraculous type of uh, a way, I guess. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I like the way you relate your story and you make the difference between before and the moment where uh, you started to look at the world from a point of view of an atheist. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, what you're saying is, as you no longer had the easy explanation that, you know, God or some kind of um, supernatural force is doing this, then in a way, it kind of forced you to look beyond that simple thing. And I think that then creates a deepening of the process. Right, exactly. It really does. I, in fact, that is the experience of most of the people that I talk to who have gone from working the steps as a believer to um, a atheist or agnostic is that they are more meaningful because we have to stop and ask ourselves what they mean to us. In fact, a lot of us actually write them out in our own language before we start going through them. And, you know, looking at your steps, um, I really enjoyed reading these. I, I What I love about the steps is actually that they, they do require some thought, you know, and um, when I, and, and I can take from my own personal experience of having gone through them, um, reading your words and relating it to what I've been through. And your description of step one was unlike anything I've ever seen before, but I think it really hits it right, right on the nail. Um, your step one is there is a big split between who I want to be and what I do. 
I am stuck in what I do. So you want to, can you kind of elaborate on that a little bit? How, what led you to see that step in that way? Well, the um, thing that I really very much like about step one in all the traditions is the sense that it's the end of the road and it's the beginning of the road. Uh, that, you know, you're, you're, you, you come to the inescapable conclusion that you have been trying to avoid seeing that things are not working. Uh, but at the same time, this is liberating. This will turn out to be liberating. But the extent to which uh, you are stuck is actually the extent to which you are going to be liberated. Now, what is the nature of that stuckness? And, and what has always amazed me about the steps, and I think the, the wisdom of the process that I like, is that, you know, having talked about alcoholism and having alluded to it in the first step, you really don't talk much about it That's afterwards. Right. That's right. So, so that's that sense that, you know, what is really happening is, of course, you know, alcoholism or drugs or whatever other behavior is the presenting symptom, but that the underlying problem is actually that you lost yourself. That's right. And uh, the reason actually that allows for, you know, the miraculous intervention of God or looking for God as the only salvation is the sense of I've lost myself. And this is a problem which has no known solution other than God. And, uh, you know, if, if putting it into a different person is what does what does it really mean to have lost yourself? And so in a very practical way, what it is, is, you know, who you are, uh, what is how do you define who you are? And is it who you think you are or is it what you do? Uh, and there is a value to both. It's not just what you do. Uh, you take, for instance, somebody who's a, who's waiting on tables and is an actor mm -hmm. uh, and defines himself by being an actor, and you can make fun of him for doing that. Mm -hmm. But it's also somebody who maybe is going to say 20 year waiting on table, and the spirit of what he's doing is going to lead him to find a great role and, and be an actor. Right. And he might never be famous, but maybe what makes him come alive is to be an actor. Mm -hmm. So I'm not necessarily putting down the what you do, you know, putting down uh, who you think you are versus what you do. But the point is, at some moment, you have a, a crisis in terms of saying, you know, who am I? And that crisis is a big split, and is what makes it hard, you know, in a way to 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 find a solution to it. Is you don't have a firm grip on you know what where you stand. Right. And so the this the the. Uh, magnitude of the question is what then launches you in a quest. And I think that's that quest that the, uh, the process of the 12 steps is about. You know, um, I, when I, uh, and most of us, well, all of us actually in AA or NA or uh, anyone that's suffering from an addiction, when they get involved with the steps, they do it out of some kind of, you know, really serious crisis going on in their life. Um, and uh, there's a lot of fear um, and some, uh, probably some pretty, um, you know, threatening issues, uh, that are forcing a person to take this action. Um, but now after many years of sobriety, um, there are smaller issues that I, that where I might get stuck in my life. Maybe I get stuck at, at work or something. And I still use these, these principles and these steps to help get me unstuck. But I guess my question to you is, um, how, how would one who is not experiencing a real serious crisis, do you think that they would still find value in these 
steps in this process and how and would they have the motivation uh so you know the the way we are is uh mindlessness is our default mode and i'm not even putting it in a bad way because in a way why waste energy uh questioning something that seems to be working mm-hmm. so uh, somebody whose life is going perfectly probably would not okay. because there's not uh, a reason for it you know the uh uh but the, we're, we're as human beings um we always have some sort of crisis or another uh you know we always have difficulties adapting to the world uh we live in a world you know a modern world that is complex and full of pressures and in addition to it we evolved from a relatively simple environment of being in little tribes to a much more complex world so you know basically life is constant crisis and so chances are uh you know there's nobody who really doesn't have a problem that's understandable i think a lot of times um we we in in the program think that we were somehow different that that some sort of crisis led us to to want to make this change but that's probably just the human condition that all human beings um are going to have difficulties in their life and it's kind of nice to have a way to recognize what's going on and then maybe doing something about it yeah and and i and i want to be careful there because in a way if i if i just simply said that especially being an outsider in a way to the culture mm-hmm. i would seem to be trivializing uh what the nature of the crisis that it can be that leads people to aa or na or mm-hmm. places like that and i and i certainly am not uh you know making this the equivalent of being stuck on say uh work issues or something of that nature right. but i see it as a continuum i think that um, and i and in my mind the reason i you know it it is really profoundly meaningful to to see it as a continuum is that it is not you know treating the idea of addiction as something that's outside uh the the realm of human experience i think of it as very much something that is um part of human experience and that in a way uh, given enough pressure um you know probably most of us one way or another would crack under the pressure and the forms under which we crack might be very different but as human beings if we have enough pressure applied to us we crack and so i think that is very helpful that the idea is that you know uh, when you crack you're not outside of of the zone of human experience you simply are at the edges where there is more pressure okay yeah um totally makes sense so um as you go through this as you go through this process um one of my favorite steps in the program actually is step 3 which i always saw as just making a decision to change and the way that you have it written out here is you re- i resolve to be more mindful of how i relate to people and situations pausing is how i do this moment by moment yeah so when you look at that when when you when you decided to when you were when you were working on putting these things together what was your source material were you were you like reading the original um alcoholics anonymous text um how did you come up with with this these thoughts i mean first i would say that this is the fourth edition mm-hmm. and so uh, you know i started this dialogue with the steps maybe in 20 years ago okay and it has gone through a lot of iterations 
and uh, you know each step, um, each uh, not step in terms of the twelve steps, but of the this process of of writing the original proactive twelve steps, the various changes, uh, you know, was a mixture of um, paying attention to the original steps as a individually and as a whole, uh, the commentaries that people may have written on them, um, uh, paying attention to it in terms of my own life and also life of people I know and interact with personally and professionally in coaching, therapy. Um, having, I started this as something that was um, essentially secular. And so with the process of demystifying the process by removing the, um, you know, the presence of God in the, in the steps uh, in order to see what was happening underneath. Uh, and, and not necessarily something that happened to people who are alcoholics or any uh, addiction, but over time, uh, as people who were in the program discovered the steps and I've got some feedback from people about how they responded to it this has also fed you know how I've done it mm-hmm. um, so to make a long story short it's really a process of thinking paying attention to uh, input to various sources in order to progressively come to an understanding of what it is that's happening well yeah I think you I think it's pretty amazing uh, that that you've been able to do this as you have I mean as I read through these, it's it's interesting because I've read the steps in a lot of different um, ways, you know, that, that people have written. And, and maybe it's just my um, understanding them that I that I can somehow relate to almost all of them. But um, it's like I always get back to this thing of language. It's, it's like we all go through this experience and it's just different ways of describing it. And using this language will reach different people. Not everybody will respond in the same way to the to the same language. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's good to have, you know, all the, all this different information out here, all these different ways of viewing things. And I, and like we said before we started talking that, that even your, you have evolved in your understanding of these things over time, I find interesting as well. Yeah. So, so for instance, you know, when you were reading, um, the third step mm-hmm. and, um, and so, um, uh, in some ways in this version is a much more, a uh, radical concept of um, proactive mindfulness at work. Um, and so that uh, instead of the concept of divine intervention, the concept of proactive mindfulness is, um, uh, you know, that mixture of wanting something, so having your eyes on the goal, but at the same time not having your eyes on the goal uh, in um, in um, a traditionally driven a slave driver type of approach, but more mindful, which is more gentle, more um, more compassionate, uh, so that there's this mixture of intentionality and and awareness and compassion and self compassion that comes in, um, and um, and that concept that uh, you can want to change your life, um, you know, but what is actually happening? What is the mechanism that replaces, you know, this miraculous intervention of God? And that proactive mindfulness is the act of or the intention and the practice of looking at your life moment by moment and being able to see it with some clarity uh, and uh, to see it with some clarity in such a way that you are able to start to see 
possibilities of, of uh, you know, getting off, you know, the default mode of finding, you know, the fork in the road where you did not see it before. Mm-hmm. So kind of that gentle ability to slow down uh, and to see things. And that's where the concept of the pause comes in, because essentially until you pause, you know, you are uh, continuing on the same mode. And you pause and you have a moment and say, oh, wait a minute. Oh, and then, you know, you can, they, you know, re- reorient. So, so that's, that's the, uh, that's a big concept of, um, you know, articulating how it is that these words of the steps are not just an intention, but that there is a built-in human mechanism uh, that allows us to go through that. You know, I, I should have asked you from the beginning, uh, your use of the word proactive, that what, what are you talking about here? Um, how, how is that different? And when you say the proactive 12 steps, mm-hmm. what do you mean by that? So originally it started in reaction to the idea uh, okay. of, um, I mean, first, you know, that, uh, there is a lot of wisdom in the idea of say the, the letting go. Mm-hmm. Okay. But the letting go by itself, you know, um, would, you know, push to the extreme would imply that you don't do anything. And the paradox is actually, um, you know, what happens in the step is people do a lot of things and change a lot. Okay. So the idea in uh, is, well, so you let go, you refocus your attention on behaving better. Uh, and then as a reward, God rewards you with sanity. Uh, and in contrast, you know, what I wanted to indicate is, no, you have a sense that you have a goal, that your life could be better, that you would have more of the life you want. Uh, so what you have found out is that by trying very hard and pushing, it's not working. But maybe there's another way to do it where you still take a central role in connecting to the sense of wanting what you want you know, in terms of having a better life, uh, and you're able to make it happen. So I think the proactive by itself, uh, in a way, needs to be corrected by the concept of mindfulness. That's why I refer to it as proactive mindfulness. So it's not just uh, proactive in the sense of, say, uh, I'm an army general, and I say, I want this hill to be taken, and I send my men there, and you die if you need to be, and go for it, and I've said it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a more gentle process that pays attention to what's happening, that tries to avoid unnecessary casualties, but it still is rooted in the idea that you develop a self. Uh, and I think that part of the, the, the health that's given by the a process of change, such as the step, is to discover a new sense of self that is actually stronger than whatever existed before. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I was just talking to somebody from Refuge Recovery last weekend, and he, um, they, they, they use the concept of mindfulness in, in their uh, process. And um, I, I think it's very valuable uh, w- way to think about things. Um, I guess I look at it as just kind of like somehow being aware. Um, is that is that how you would see mindfulness? Is like an awareness of, of, of like where I'm at or, or what's going on with me at any given time? So, yes, yes, I, I would use, um, see, I, I, I mean, yes, if I had a, just a simple yes or no, I would say yes okay. to what you're doing, and I would want to expand on it. Okay. 
uh, I like to think of mindfulness simply as the opposite of mindlessness. So not to make it that in order to qualify as mindful, you have to have been meditating 12 hours a day for the past 50 years, you know, that kind of stuff. But really, essentially to say uh, mindful is simply the opposite of mindless. Hmm. And mindless is nothing that's a flaw in character, but simply, you know, in order to function, you know, our mind needs to not deal with a lot of stuff that's unnecessary, okay? Mm -hmm. So basically, we have built-in mechanisms to not pay attention to stuff unless it's absolutely necessary, unless, you know, there's something that calls our attention to it. So by definition, we're mostly mindless, and the mindfulness is simply developing the ability to create a little mini crisis, a little something that pays, that draws our attention on something that we don't necessarily pay attention to, but it would be helpful for us to. Yeah. Um, it sounds like it, it's something that requires some discipline and practice. Yeah, but you'd be amazed how simple it is because mm-hmm. in a, you know, the, the, yes, practice, some degree of discipline, of intentionality, mm-hmm. right? but so much less than, say, um, traditionally people think that, oh, I cannot be mindful unless I practice mindfulness, which is that I'm going to sit every day right. for 15, 20 minutes, right. you know, and do something that's divorced from my life. The practice here is simply to remember from time to time to pause, you know. And so, for instance, I'm talking to you mm-hmm. and I just am going to have a pause of a couple of seconds, you, as a listener, will barely listen that I have paused. Mm-hmm. But in that moment, it allow myself to just turn a little bit the attention. Say, hey, you know, what's happening? I don't even have to ask myself that question. Simply by pausing, by stopping being, you know, on a, uh, you know, bum, 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 bum. Right, right. I allow myself to have a little bit of input of what else is happening. Okay. Yeah. Um, the world that we live in is, you know, we're always going from one thing to the next. We've got, you know, we've got our cell phones, we've got our email, we've got our laptops, we've got the phones ringing, and there's just all this stimulus coming our way all the time. And, you know, when I know when I go to work, it's just um, constantly one thing after another after another, and not a lot of time to stop. And, and um, I think that would probably be a healthy thing to do once in a while, even if it's just for a second or two, just to stop and, um, and give myself that pause, I guess, to be aware of. So, so yes, and, and what I want to do is to point out of how, um, you know, the best way to go through that is to build on what you're already doing. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, um, you're a good interviewer, and the reason you are is because you process, you pay attention to what's happening. You're not on a one track of having a sense of what you're going to need to do, but you absorb, you know, what the person who is interviewed is saying, mm-hmm. and you adjust based on that. Right. Okay? So, um, in doing that, you cannot do that. If you have not, if you didn't have um, a little bit of a pause, an internal process, okay, because you'd be totally on your track, and and so, um, you know, my my point about the pause is it's not something that people, you know, that I advise people to create out of nothing, but look in your own life in the ways in which you actually do that, because it's a very very human capacity that we all have and see how you're doing it and just simply once you notice that and you have the curiosity to notice it you'll find that you extend it to more areas of your life 
Yep. Um, thank you for that. I, I, uh, I'm not always such a great interviewer. <laughs> uh, one thing I've learned about, um, in doing these podcasts and now I've done almost 70 of them, I guess, is, um, early on, I would listen to a recording of a conversation I was having and I would notice, gosh, I didn't really listen to what he was saying, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I thought, how often do I do that in my life? where I'm in a conversation, but I'm not really listening and paying attention to the person. And so in a certain respect, this has made me a better listener, but I'm also much more critical of my listening skills because I'm always, I'm always making a mistake. But um, that, I've, anyway, this is some, something I've kind of gotten out of that is that skill of listening is, um, is a, is something I'm still trying to develop. It's not always. Well, but, but I want to again highlight something you, you described this as being very much the process I'm describing. So you said early on, um, in the convers- in, uh, in starting the process of interviewing people, you had some curiosity about how you performed in a sense that probably you were not as good an interviewer, a good listener, mm-hmm. and you started listening and noticing that okay? and so that's that's the kind of that's the kind of that's what proactive mindfulness is that you you know you say I want to be better you know what I'm doing so very similar to step one you know there's a split between who I want to be and what I'm doing I'd like to be somebody who is a good interviewer and a good listener somebody who's able to take in what people are saying mm-hmm. and you know mm, by facing the reality of listening to interviews, I'm noticing I'm not as much as I want to be or not as good as I want to be. So how is it that I can change it? Okay. And that's where you started on the process. And so, uh, you know, what's happens is, you know, we all have a built in tendency to be more critical than need be. And, and I think that the, what is really good is to, you know, and I think it's part of the, the process of 12 steps. And the reason I like, you know, pointing it out is that the the traditional 12 steps cast the process in terms of sin and redemption. Right. So sin keeps you talking about defects of character and things about you doing wrong and increase the cycle of self-blame, you know, which is actually part of the cycle of addiction, whether it be addiction to substance or any other addiction that there is, is there's so much pressure uh, on realizing how you're underperforming. Uh, and how you're bad, that basically the only refuge you have is whatever gives you temporary comfort. Yep. And then you come back to feeling bad, and it fuels the cycle. Mm-hmm. And so the, um, you know, the mindfulness component is to realize, oh, I'm doing that, and this is a part of what I'm doing, and probably the reason I'm doing is I feel some pressure at that moment. And so the wanting to understand the pressure uh, and so very similar, you know, um, you know, I was pointing out uh, something you had said before about how when you stopped being, you know, uh, believing in God as an explanation for the process, you were then freer right. to see other things. So when one stops being self-critical, you know, one has room to actually see what is happening until right. then, being self-critical masks the process. So when you stop being self-critical, you realize, okay, so I feel under a lot of pressure at that moment. And what are the approaches that are going to help me deal with that? Mm -hmm. And I venture to say that, you know, consciously or not, you landed on some form of pausing 
to give you some space during the interviews because that's what you manage to do mm-hmm. in order to actually listen to guests and to redirect the conversation in a nice way. Yeah, you know, um, you brought up a point there about how um, traditional, um, the religious view, I guess, of, of Alcoholics Anonymous or the 12 Steps, um, it does it does kind of cast these things as character defects or something wrong with me and God will make things better. Um, and I tell you what, I've actually been um, in meetings where I have seen people kind of use the steps to beat themselves up and that's not what they were intended for i think that there's kind of a fine line in being honest about yourself and trying to understand yourself and just beating yourself up Mm -hmm. Um, and i wonder how how you would think a person would avoid falling into the trap of just beating themselves up as opposed to just um, looking at those patterns of of their life that they want to change so so you know i think part of it is a Maybe the important first is to recognize it's happening and to look that when you beat yourself up, you know, um, essentially what is happening is that you put yourself outside of the realm of the okay people. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so uh, essentially, you know, when people do that, they accentuate the pattern of feeling, oh, um, I'm an addict. So already there's a big loaded word compared to people who are sane. Uh, oh, I have all of these character defects compared to people who are okay. Mm. And so there's a growing sense of isolation. And the growing sense of isolation that brings a growing sense of inadequacy, you know, so therefore that's the opposite of having, you know, connecting to what gives you power from inside. Mm-hmm. You're not okay. So from that place of not okay, it very much infantilizes you to the place where only something outside of you that's magnanimous and generous and, you know, all-powerful can draw you out of that state of your nothing Mm -hmm. to redeem you into being an okay human being, okay? So in a way, it's it's again, it's it's part of the problem as opposed to the solution. And, And the solution is to, you know, have the sense of, of course, you know, no human beings is, is perfect. Far from that. We all have flaws and, and, and you or I may have, you know, flaws that are bigger than the average person. But the point about it is what gives us a lever, you know, some kind of a grip on, on improving who we are is, um, you know, standing on the firm ground of what is solid. And what is solid is to say, okay, so I want to go with the basic assumption that if I do some things that are beyond the pale, if I do something that are really bad, it might very well be because at that moment I'm experiencing such pressure that I crumble under it and I don't know how to handle it, okay, which is not how I want to be. And, you know, I'm in, but I'm not going to characterize myself as weak for that. Right. I want to understand better the pressure because if I understand the pressure better, then I can deal with it better. Right. This is really reaffirming because I, I kind of see myself sometimes uh, uh, doing doing just those just those things uh, that you're describing. But I find I find that whole process of looking at um, you know the truth of of, of the the inventory process is, is valuable to me. Of all the tools I've ever learned in the twelve step process, it's probably been the inventory. Um, that has helped me the most because, because it does give me the time to really seriously look at what, what I am doing, how I'm reacting to different things and anything that I can't change, I kind of throw out anything I can change. I try to focus on. Um, and it really does help kind of bring me into where I, I need, um, to be, uh, mm-hmm. what I need to do. 
Yeah. And so, so what you're saying is essentially uh, the value of it uh, is the sense that it brings you where you need to be. And so, so that's a good, you know, it's a good um, uh, benchmark. Um, so when you do something, people do. And so we all have a tendency, again, as human beings, and we, the, the looking at, at, uh, at ourselves, um, you know, through centuries or millennia of civilization, essentially we learn to looking at ourselves just to be critical. Mm-hmm. Okay. But so the point, if you use the criteria of is this actually helping me or not? Hmm. You know, at some point you, you, you think, you know, it's so ingrained that it should be helpful that, yeah, yeah, it feels bad, but it must be good. Just like if the medicine tastes bad, it must be good. Mm-hmm. But you look look at it and you say, well, actually, what I'm noticing is when I beat myself up, you know, it actually makes it less easy to make any changes. Mm-hmm. Okay, So it's not a question of mollycoddling. It's just a question of finding the, the fertile ground on which it's from it's possible to make changes. Um Let's talk about these videos that you're making. Um, so you're doing this now. Um, and and I, I signed up to your, for your newsletter. So I get to, I get the newsletter to let me know about your videos, but this is something new that you're doing. Is, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. What I thought about is that a lot of these things are, um, you know, a little bit difficult conceptually mm-hmm. because when we deal with change, you know, Again, whether it be something really major, but even things that are less major, um, our default behaviors are behaviors that uh, deal with taking a shortcut uh, and avoiding moments of vulnerability. You know, so Mm -hmm. the reason we might be brusque or this or that or, you know, whatever default behavior we have with people, you know, uh, is, is really a moment avoiding, you know, the moment of vulnerability. So as a result, reading about something uh, is not necessarily gut level in reaching you. Right. And what I wanted to do with the video is kind of communicate with people at a more gut level, uh, a simpler level, and also visually uh, show the difference in a felt sense of being stuck versus a felt sense of being unstuck. And, and so Stuck being, you know, I'm stuck in what I do versus unstuck is I'm actually have a sense of flowing ease of, you know, leaving, leading life the way I'd like to lead it. And, and to, to, by showing it in an exaggerated form visually to help people notice it in themselves. And as I think as you do, it gives you a very practical tool moment by moment. You know, to connect with that and say, oh, I'm in that kind of mode and not, oh, and, and show visually the what happens, how you shift from one to the other. So it's not that there is a miracle that happens when you do that. It's not, you know, like a take two aspirins and you become a different person. But you start to recognize, you know, the markers inside. Uh, and these markers are very personal. And as you have them inside, you have a benchmark to notice moment by moment, you know, how you're behaving. And it gives you a compass, you know, to uh, to orient your efforts. Yeah. 
I was I was really impressed with um, it's almost like I wonder if you had had some acting in your background because you really did a great job with your body language and kind of demonstrating these principles as you were going through the videos. Um, and I, I know that was intentional on your part, but I thought that was really amazing. So it's a, it, I don't have an acting background, but uh, in my in my work, uh, you know, I pay a lot of attention to embodied emotion. And uh, and so when I see clients um i have for many years had the habit of actually try to capture the sense of the dynamic that's happening either when inside a person or within a couple and to embody that by you know miming it by by giving a visual representation of it because essentially um you know seeing it uh, is is a much more gut level type of communication than describing it Mm -hmm. and then people get it. And when you get it, then you're able to instinctively see how you relate to it and how you might want to change it. It's interesting. These different ways of communicating. I, I, I noticed that also with um, podcasts, a lot of people love podcasts because um, they, they, they relate to the people in the podcast. Um, There's something about when they hear their story through somebody else um, speaking it, um, it moves them in ways that the written word sometimes doesn't. And then if you add the visual component on top of that, where you actually get to see the, the human being move and expressions on their face and so forth, that adds another level of the communication. So it's nice that you have that you add all of that together and then you have a transcript with each of your videos as well. So, um, what, what are your plans, uh, going forward with this? What, are you going to be developing this any further or? Yeah, no, it is, it is very much, it's, it's a, it's a continued work in progress, but specifically at this stage, uh, you know, the borrowing a term from the software industry, you know, what they call a new, uh, software and when it comes out, they call it a beta version. Mm-hmm. So before it's officially released, um, people, uh, you know, a bunch of people try it, experiment with it and to notice, you know, how it can be improved. Mm-hmm. So that fourth edition is in a beta version, which means that, uh, you know, the, uh, for the next couple of months, uh, it's, uh, you know, intense period of taking input uh, feedback from people. Uh, and, uh, you know, all, I always do that, you know, that's how they evolve from version to version, but specifically here, the final fourth version will be issued only in 2018 after taking into consideration input from people. Mm-hmm. So every week, you know, a new step is released. People who want to, uh, have been notified by it, you know, subscribe to the newsletter. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so that video of that step is released. And I'm, I love having feedback from people in terms of the specific step, the wording of the step, or, uh, you know, the, the commentary on it, or the process as a whole, as I describe it, or um, events in their life that relates to it, uh, so that, you know, it can help um, get the, uh, get this a little bit uh, more able to communicate with people. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it's, it's nice that you provide this service like this. Um, I mean, this is a lot of work that you, that you put into this. Um, it, there, is there something that drives you to, to want to help like this? Um, is there something in your background that motivated you to want to help people by providing all this information? Yeah. Yeah. So I think the, you know, in a way it's very similar to the spirit of the 12th step as I understand it. Mm-hmm. That, uh, you know, um, as as you struggle with your issues, 
uh, and get a sense of liberation from them. And I don't mean liberation in the sense of being completely free of them because we never can be. But there is a more of a sense of um, uh, wanting to share some of that with other people. And, um, and, and it feels good to do that. So uh, as I mentioned before, you know, uh, I'm a therapist and a life coach and, you know, uh, as many people who become therapists or life coach, part of it is part of the motivation behind it has mm-hmm. been to understand better what drives me to, to, to feel better with my own struggles. Uh, and, you know, it feels good in that context to help other people. And I do this in the context of my work for which I'm paid. Mm -hmm. But there's also something that feels very good about spreading the ideas beyond what I could ever be able to achieve by seeing people one-on-one or in groups. Yeah, well, this helps a lot of people. Um, Not everybody, of course, has access to the internet, but but a lot of people do. And there's a lot of people out there that are searching for answers. They're searching for a solution. And even within our own community of, you know, um, agnostics and atheists and, and AA, there's a lot of us who um, are just now discovering that there, there is, that it is possible to have a different interpretation of the 12 steps, to have a more secular view of them, or more humanistic approach. So all of this information is so valuable. In fact, when I shared this with um, our Facebook group, People just jumped all over it. They loved, they loved this. So this is, this is amazing work and it's good that you're providing this for people. I really thank you for doing that. Thank you, John. I really appreciate it. And I very much appreciated how, um, you know, you put uh, some of yourself in the questions you ask. Mm-hmm. And, um, so it made, uh, this conversation we had, I think, deeper and, uh, and more satisfying. Well, thank you very much. That's, that's part of the AA culture, I think. We're, we're always speaking from our own experience, and it's almost a bad habit sometimes. <laughs> but yeah. thank you for that. It's been a pleasure talking. Thank you for listening, everybody. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I certainly appreciate your support. Um, if you have an idea for a podcast or if you'd like to appear on one of our episodes, Uh, please send me an email at john at aabeyondbelief.org. I'd be glad to hear from you. Uh, Also, if you can think about it, uh, head on over to iTunes. And if you like what you're hearing, give us a positive review. That might help a little bit. Um, If you don't like what you're hearing, if you have any critiques, uh, send me an email. Let us know. We'll make a change. So again, I enjoyed it. Um, We'll be back again next week with another episode. Till then, you all take care and be well.